Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you, Jim, for that nice introduction. Uh, I'm delighted to join you here today, and I echo something Jim said before about uh, this partnership between UT Arlington and uh, the World Affairs Council. Uh, we're delighted to be a part of this event and uh, look forward to future collaboration. <clears throat> I'm here on behalf of President Jim Spaniolo today. Um, as you might guess, we have a lot going on on campus these days with uh, multiple graduations over the next few days and all the events that, that go around that. So. Uh, he is uh, unfortunately unable to be here. Um, we will be graduating in the next few days almost 2,500 new alumni into the community. So uh, if you are <clears throat> in a position to offer them jobs, I'm sure they will be more than happy to take you up on that. Um, before I introduce our, our guest speaker, I'd like to recognize just a couple of my colleagues who are here in the room. Dave Mack, who is over here. He's our associate dean in the College of Business. Uh, and I'd also like to introduce the management team from our Fort Worth Center that's just a few blocks from here at the Santa Fe Station. Uh, Mike West, who's right here at the head table, who's our executive director. Um, Megan Topham, who's our <coughs> operations director. She's out of the room. And Terry Ryan, who is our consultant and uh, senior advisor. <clears throat> we are indeed honored to have a very special guest speaker with us today. Um, I suspect He'll either make us feel really good about what's going on in the world or he's just going to scare the living daylights out of us. I'm not sure which, but maybe a little bit of both, hopefully. Um, David Rothkopf is a visiting scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington, D.C. He specializes in U.S. foreign policy and economic strategy and also is an international business consultant and professor. He is an expert in numerous fields, including emerging markets, global trends, economic market reform, U.S.-China relations, U.S.-Russia relations, and global national security. He is president and CEO of Garten Rothkopf, an international advisory firm specializing in investments in emerging markets and risk management-related services. Previously, he was founder, chairman, and CEO of IntelliBridge, a firm specializing in open source intelligence and advisory services on international issues. He has served as managing director of Kissinger Associates, and as Deputy Undersecretary of Commerce in the Clinton Administration. He currently serves as Chairman of the National Strategic Investment Dialogue and is a member of the advisory boards of both the U.S. Institute of Peace and the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He is a prolific writer. His work appears regularly in the New York Times and the Washington Post, and his latest book is Superclass, The Global Power Elite and the World They Are Making. Ladies and gentlemen, please, a warm Texas welcome for David Rothkopf. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I used to, when I hear, hear when I heard introductions like that, I would say something to the effect of, "Well, I was I was in the first Clinton administration. I was It's not even a joke anymore. It's the only Clinton administration. There's, I don't think there's going to be a second Clinton administration. Um, but we can talk about that later if you like. Um, what, what I'd really like to talk to you about for a few minutes." and then maybe we'll have a little bit of a discussion here, is 
the changing nature of power in the world today. Uh, that's the subject of superclass. Some people pick up a book that says superclass and think, ah, this is another book like Richestan or one of these books which my agent calls the pornography of the rich. You know, or he says, oh my God, that guy has a house and it costs a billion dollars. I, I know you think I'm kidding, but there's actually a guy who's building a house that may actually cost about a billion dollars um, in, in India. Okay, so just, 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 just so you know. Or, you know, this guy has bigger plane, or this person, you know, it, there's some of that in the book because power and wealth go together kind of hand in hand. But what it's really talking about is that while every generation has its elites, and ha there have always been elites from the beginning of time, and, and in fact, we shouldn't sort of immediately jump to the conclusion that elites are a bad thing. You know, there are groups, I sometimes give this speech, and as soon as I say the word elite, I see, you know, torches being lit and people brandishing pitchforks, you know, and let's go and get them, eat the rich, and that kind of, that's more in the Northwest when I'm in, like, Oregon. But uh, uh, some, some, some parts of New York. But, uh, you know, that's not the angle of the book either. Because sometimes people are leaders because they lead. And sometimes people are leaders because they do what they do better than other people. And there is a role in every society for people who overachieve, and indeed there should always be incentives in societies to enable people to succeed to a high level. Um, but our elites are different from past elites. And you can, in fact, tell a lot about a society by who rises to the top and how they use the power and influence that they've got. And, uh, you know, most of the history of the world, in fact, is a, the story of how an elite group rose up, used its power, overreached, and was pulled down by another group, typically acting in the name of the people and typically becoming the elite that succeeded the first elite. Uh, now, how is our elite different? Well, first of all, it's global. Most elites in the past have been within a country. They might have been the ruling class in a city-state or a principality or a kingdom, or even you know the, the, the robber barons of the 19th century here in the United States. But what's very different about that is that in all of those environments, if they rise up, if they, they get too much power, there's always a mechanism to offset that. Sometimes it's a, a revolution, you know, so, but, but with the robber barons, it was trust busters. It was writing laws that said, you can't go this far. We've got to have some balance. We represent the people. But when you go up to the global stage, who says that? When you're operating on a transnational level, who's the voice of the people? It's, it's very clear that at this stage in the development of the global era, there's nobody to do that that there is a very, very small group that is super empowered, that is more global than any other group on the planet in terms of their reach and their travel, is more globalized than any other group on the planet. In fact, although they're from 180 countries, they have more in common with each other than they do with the people in the countries they came from. They went to the same schools. I, I looked at a group of 6,000 of the most powerful people on earth. That's the group that I call the superclass. And the definition I used was a kind of simple definition. 
and you may you may want to use a different definition. Now, everybody can play this game at home, you know, build your own superclass. The definition I used was people who have the ability to influence millions of lives across borders on a regular basis. Now, if you were even looking for a group like that a hundred years ago, it would only be a few people. But today, it's several thousand people. We added it up, and it's CEOs of certain companies, and it's heads of certain financial institutions, and it's people who run big government organizations, and it's some military leaders, and it's some religious leaders, and, and it's not all the religious leaders you may think. There are preachers in different parts of the world who have global ministries that reach into dozens or scores of countries and have millions and millions of adherents. Sometimes it's scientist activists. Sometimes it's even actors and celebrities who use their influence across borders. Bono certainly be a member of this group. Angelina Jolie, she might be a member of this group. Brad, not so much. Um, <laughs> Brittany, not in this group, okay? Um, and you know, she's rich, um, but she doesn't use the influence that she has across borders on a regular basis, and, 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 and you know, she doesn't even use it at home, as far as I can tell. Um, but, so, you know, you've got a, a kind of a big, diverse group from 180 countries, and, you know, several things distinguish the members of this group. One is, it's almost all men. 94% of this group is male, 6% of this group is female. By far, the least well-represented or the most underrepresented group in the global power structure is women. 51% of the planet, 6% of the group. Minority groups, ethnic groups, better represented proportionally than women. Um, another thing that distinguishes this group is that they begin to be like each other quite an early age. Uh, many of you are affiliated with the university. I didn't look at the, the relationship between your university and this group. I looked at 20 universities. And of this group of 6,600 people from 180 countries, almost a third went to one of 20 universities. I mean, it's an astonishing number when you think about 180 countries. What does it say? It says the networks start forming early. There are a few gateways in that are better gateways than other gateways. Now, by the way, if you want to run a U.S. corporation, better to go to state university. The vast majority of Fortune 500 CEOs went to state university. So there are groups within this group that take a different path. The ones that sort of go through those 20 universities tend to be in the financial sector, they tend to be in some of the government sectors and so forth. But it's a very, very telling aspect of this. Because one of the things we tell ourselves a lot is, well, another thing that makes our era different is that our elites earned their way to the top. And it's true that in the past, elites inherited their wealth for the most part. They didn't make it. And today's group, most of these people made it. They just published the rich of the list of the richest people in the United Kingdom last weekend, and 78% of them are self-made. And that's, that's big, and that's different. Uh, but having said that, it's not really a meritocracy if most of the people on the planet, no matter how hard they work, can never get into it. It's not really a meritocracy if, if because you're a woman, you can't get into it. 
or if you're born in Papua New Guinea, you can't get into it. Or if you're born in Sub-Saharan Africa, you know, you got a room of people just like you guys, same DNA, work just as hard, just as good looking, just as sort of tired in the middle of the day as all of you. And, 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 and you could take that group and put them in one of those countries and they don't get to sit at a lunch like this, they don't get to do what you do as a job, and they, they, they have much less likelihood of being able to get up to the top of power. Another thing that separates this group is that in the past where power was inherited and mostly had to do with land, today it has to do with an institutional affiliation. About two-thirds of the group are in the, public sec in the private sector. In the past, if you looked for an international elite, it would be more from the public sector. But global corporations are designed to be the actors on the global stage. Nations aren't. Nations are like your dog trapped in that invisible fence around your yard that starts to yelp when he gets to the edge because they've got boundaries on their sovereignty. Nation can't go and write laws for what happens outside its borders, can't arrest people most of the time for what happens outside its borders, can't regulate what happens outside its borders. And so as you get more and more really important transnational issues, more and more issues that affect all of our lives on a daily basis, that are on a transnational basis, you got to wonder who's setting the rules. You know, who's setting the rules about transnational financial markets, about trade, about proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, about the values that are being used in this space, about pandemics or migration or other things that happen in the transnational space? And the answer is, because government isn't there, informal clusters of super-empowered people end up influencing it. Now, you know, I think one of the reasons, I'll tell you, my last book, Running the World, big success, got a lot of good reviews, sold lots of copies, but I don't think that's the reason that the publisher that I have now bought this book. I think the reason the publisher I have bought this book is they said, Superclass, you know, ka-ching, conspiracy theorists. There are conspiracy theorists everywhere, and they'll think of this and they'll go, ah, this is a book about the Freemasons or the Illuminati or Davos or Bilderberg or how the Council on Foreign Relations really runs the world. Well, I can tell you, I'm a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. And the only thing that the Council on Foreign Relations does is it runs long in terms of its meetings, and it runs kind of old in terms of its demographic. Um, it's one of the few places I can still go, and I feel like I'm the youngest guy in the room. Uh, I'm not really happy that that gets a laugh, but, um, but it's, you know, the, the, these groups have a role to play, some of them. I mean, some of this stuff is is fanciful. You know, I, I grew up in New Jersey, which is another state. Some of you may have heard of it. Um, and, and uh, you know, I was a Jewish boy in New Jersey. I heard, well, you know, the world Jewish conspiracy. And I was like, hot diggity. That's for me. If there's a world Jewish conspiracy, I want in. Um, there are not that many Jews. And I could get, a, like, an important position. Nothing flashy. Maybe, like, you know, I could be in charge of Canada. Um, but, but, you know, lo and behold, you discover, no, it's not really that. You know, there's an old joke among Jews that if you want three opinions, you have to get two Jews in a room. 
They don't get along very well. Um, you know, they don't get along very well. There's, there's you know, it, it, the, the, there's not enough adherence. There's more self-interest. And actually, when you look at a group, particularly a super-empowered group, how do you get to be the head of a company? How do you get to be the head of a country? Ambition, focus, day-to-day -day application to your own self-interest. That makes you a lousy candidate for a conspiracy theory. But when your interests line up, if all you know, five of you guys are the heads of big companies, and you may not even stand each other, I, for all I know from lunch conversation, I don't know if you like each other, but no, I'm kidding. But I, you know, if, if, you, if, if, if you guys are in an argument about how does a company, or, I mean, it, it, you know, facing a decision that gets made in countries about how does taxation work or how does regulation work, you might not even talk to each other, but you, 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 you you're all going to go in and advance the same thing. Because it's in your self-interest, and when so the power of this group is when the self-interests of this group align, and that you know that may not sound as sexy as people going into a room lit by candles and wearing hoods and you know Tom Hanks and the Da Vinci Code and all of that, but it's how power really happens on the planet. Now there are some of these groups, the Davos meetings and the the Bilderberg meetings and the Trilateral Commission, where people do meet with each other and they check out what each other's views are, and they play a role in what's the most important pro role that the really powerful have on the global stage, which is setting the agenda. Climate change is important. Iraq is a big deal. I think the economy's going in a bad direction. They go home and they spread these views, and that's got a lot of influence. But um, that's about it for these kind of organizations, and some of them are kind of past their sell-by date in terms of their, of their influence. Uh, and others will take their place, because there have always been these kind of forums that knit people together. You know, World Affairs Councils are a perfect example, where you bring people with common interests together, and they say, well, what do you think of Iraq? And, you know, they, there's, it's not a conspiracy, but a lot of people walk out with a similar view, because they're hearing the same things, and they're sharing views, and they're seeing what their peers think. And that's what, you know, that's, that's kind of how this works. But, it's not, you know, the, the, the book isn't just sort of a study or a list of, you know, sort of big-name people. In fact, one of the things that comes up a lot is, well, where's the list of 6,600 people? And I mention a couple of hundred people in the book, but one of the reasons I don't put the list of 6,600 people in the book is that because power is transient in today's world. And if we had this discussion eight weeks ago, the CEO of Bear Stearns would have been on this list. But today, no. You know, um, if, you know, you would have had uh, Victor Bout, the big Russian arms dealer, but he got arrested a few weeks ago. He's not on this list anymore. You know, Vladimir Putin used to be president of Russia. Now he's, oh, he's prime minister now. Okay, so that's a bad example. But the point is, because he, you know, he, is, he is still firmly in power. But the, 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 the point is that within this group, um, there's enough change that if we published a list, we'd spend the whole time debating who should be on it, as opposed to the nature of the list. And, and what I'm really interested in then is the nature of the list. Now, the other thing that makes this better than conspiracy theory is more interesting, more compelling, even if you're a high school student and you're thinking, I'm not going to be in the elite yet for, well, the youngest guy that I identified in the group's 23, so, you know, do the math. Uh, that's, by the way, Mark Zuckerberg who 
actually went to Harvard with my research assistant on this, and this galls her to this day, because he nearly got thrown out of Harvard because he was trying to meet girls, and he came up with some software program, by the way, not a great way to meet girls, um, to evaluate them. And, 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 and this was not highly successful, so he like went home over winter break, and he said, there's got to be a better way to do this. And he thought, I know. There's this book that we all get at the beginning of freshman year um, where their pictures are in it. Maybe I could make an online version of that and people could talk to each other. And so he called it Facebook. Um, and he is 23 now, and he's worth billions of dollars because of that. And my research assistant is not worth billions of dollars. And it drives her crazy. You know, she was Facebook user number 11 or something. Um, <laughs> And she, you know, I went to Harvard, and you know, it's another important lesson, by the way, you know, about this meritocracy idea. Um, we always talk about you know the rules of the game, and one of the things I talk about in the book is economists have all these rules, and they always write this, and then they throw in a Latin phrase, primarily because people don't speak Latin anymore, at the end of it, and they say, "Well, this is the way this will all work out." Ceteris paribus, and ceteris paribus means all things being equal. But of course, all things are never equal. And one of the things that is least equal and is most relevant is the distribution of luck in society. And those of you who are younger listening to this will discover, sadly, whether it's your high school classmates or your college classmates, you will have people who are dumber than you, who didn't work as hard as you, who weren't as good looking as you, who made a lot more money than you who are much more successful, and it's just unfair and tough. That's the way the world works. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, that's, that's, a big, that's a big dimension. But I mean, part of it's, you know, if you're born in the wrong place or you're born in the wrong gender or you're born out of reach of the right kind of schooling, if you're one of the half of the people of the world who never heard a dial tone, you know, you're not in the game. Not something you did. You're just out of the game. And so that, you know, I mean, most of us, you know, anybody here, anybody in the United States, we can fix that problem a little bit better. But we can't fix it enough to say that it's a true meritocracy. In the United States, if you're born in the bottom 60% of the population in terms of wealth, you have a 1 in 20 uh, chance, a 5% chance of making it into the top 10%. So even in a society with the highest mobility, getting up into the top is really, really hard. And that's one thing that we need to look at as we evaluate the elite, because the elite's a reflection of our time. But one of the really, really you know, sort of interesting dimensions of this elite, to me, is that over the course of the past 30 years, there has been an incredible concentration of power. This book was based on a book that was written in the United States in the 1950s called The Power Elite by a guy named C. Wright Mills. And it looked at how the political and the business and the military leadership in the United States, everybody kind of knew each other. They were kind of interlocking directorships of these people, right? Um, and part of the reason I did the book is I thought, well, if you were looking for that today, it would be in a global stage. It wouldn't be a national stage. But when that was written, the defense budget of the United States was pretty big, big enough that a couple years later, President Eisenhower gave a speech about the military-industrial complex and how he was worried it was going to take over the world. Um, that defense budget was so big that it was larger than the annual sales of all the big companies in America added up. 
Today, the defense budget is bigger than that defense budget. Today's defense budget, in real dollar terms, is bigger than the defense budget has ever been since 1944, in the middle of the Second World War. It is smaller by 50% than the annual sales of two companies, Exxon and Walmart. Exxon's profits last year were bigger than the GDP of Bahrain and Yemen added up. Exxon's sales were roughly, if it were a country, and sales equal GDP, which it doesn't, but it's just a thumbnail, it would make it the 19th largest country in the world. There are 250 companies in the world that have sales that are equal to a third of global GDP. The top 2,000 companies in the world have 70 million employees. They support another 400 million people, so that's half a billion people. Their distributors and suppliers, it's another half a billion people. That's a billion people, 2,000 companies, 2,000 CEOs and boards making decisions <coughs> affecting directly the daily lives of these people around the world. A billion. Well, on a planet of six billion, the bottom three billion live on $2 a day. They're the poor people who, when you turn on the TV tonight and you watch about this horrible disaster in Myanmar, that's them. $2 a day, living miserable lives. That's half the planet. There's another group that's kind of in the penumbra, in the shadows. They're also doing lousy. So only about two billion people in the world who make any kind of living at all, and half of them report to the leadership of 2,000 companies. There are 50 financial institutions in the world with $48.5 trillion in assets, the 50 biggest. That's a third of all the assets on the planet controlled by 50 institutions. This kind of concentration of wealth and power is everywhere. Remember, the book's about power, so military power. 200 countries in the world, only 30 or 40 of weapons of mass destruction, only 20 of missiles, only 9 or 10 of nuclear weapons, only 3 have air forces with over 1,000 planes in them. Only one can wage a war globally or wage a war in space. That country, this country, spends more money on defense than every other country in the world added up. Our alliance, the NATO alliance, spends 85% of what's spent on defense. All 10 of the largest defense contractors in the world are in our alliance, are located in NATO countries. So power is very concentrated. Now, one of the side effects of this is military elites have fallen relative to past groups because war is too costly too, too hard to fight. Most people won't fight it. Um, so they're, they're less influential. But take religion. There are 4,300 religions in the world, but there are only 20 with over a million adherents. There are only two with over a billion adherents. So again, power is concentrated up at the top. The few people who are at the very top of each one of these pyramids have the greatest influence. Now, that supports the idea that there's a fairly small group who is most influential. When I went out, I interviewed 150 people, and a lot of what's in the book is my conversations with these people. Almost always, you know, and each of you know it in your own area, and it's true in, in a city, and it's true in a state, and it's true in a nation, and it's true around the world. Almost always, when I talk to people at the top, they would say, small world. There are 20 people who run my field. There are 30 people who are the most influential people in my field. 
this is the, you know, these are the people who are really making things happen. And th so that's, you know, another really sort of meaningful distinction within this group. But when you have this concentration of power, this group has a certain responsibility for how globalization evolves. And as this group has evolved over the past 30 years, some other things have happened. And one of the things that has happened is that in more and more places in the world, the good news is markets have come. Democracy has come. The bad news is that people have said, let's leave it to the markets. Governments, let's not let governments get all into this global stage. Governments aren't there to balance it out. And, and over the past 30 years, by every measure you can think of, inequality has grown in the world. Inequality between countries, inequality within countries. Middle classes have shrunk in all but two countries in the world, China and India. But even in China, which has grown more than any other place, middle classes have, have, have grown a little, but inequality has almost doubled. Um, 100 years ago, at a time of great inequality, the richest countries in the world were nine times wealthier than the poorest countries in the world. Today, they're over 100 times wealthier. 30 years ago, the richest country in the world, which back then was the good old USA, was 88 times richer than the poorest country, which back then was Bangladesh. Today, the richest country in terms of per capita GDP, which is, do you guys know? The back table, the richest country in the world. Correct, Luxembourg. Um, that's what you were going to say, right? Uh, 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 the, the richest country in the world uh, is 288 times richer than the poorest country. In Manhattan, used to be that the richest fifth were nine times richer than the poorest fifth. Today, they're 90 times richer than the poorest fifth. Used to be, in the United States, the average CEO made 35 times the average employee. Today, the average CEO makes 370 times the average employee. That's five times greater than the average uh, uh, of, uh, uh, that was found in ancient Rome in terms of the difference between what a Roman general would make and a Roman foot soldier would make. So I mean, you know, you think this is historical by any, 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 any kind of measure. Um, well, the question we have to ask ourselves is if most of history is the story of elites rising up and then overreaching, and then being pulled down, is this elite overreach? And we've seen it, and you know, I mean, look, to pick up the newspaper, pick, look, at, look at what has happened in the past couple weeks. Look at what happened in the financial thing. For, for several decades, financial leaders have said, as far as global financial regulation goes, leave it to us. We will self-regulate global markets. We can handle this. Now, you know, it's funny to me because, you know, I know a lot of these guys, and none of them would ever dream of getting into a self-regulating taxi cab or brushing their teeth with self-regulating toothpaste. <laughs> but, you know, they say, okay, I'm going to, you know, we'll leave it to us. Even though, whenever that happens, whenever that happens, trust me on this, whenever that happens, markets overreach, they overshoot, and there is a massive correction. And so that we've created these incredibly big, complex markets globally and derivatives and other kinds of things, people don't even know where the risk is. Mortgage-backed securities was an example of that. Created these big markets, 
And then what happened? Blew up. Wasn't regulated. Regulators weren't paying attention. Anybody who was paying attention would have known that the real estate markets in the United States were going to blow up. 70% of the mortgages written in California three years ago were negative amortization mortgages, which meant that if interest rates went the other way, they were all underwater. I talked to the head of the San Francisco Home Loan Board four years ago. This is the biggest problem. I run a group of big institutional investors that meet twice a year. For four years, they said this is the biggest problem. News to people in Washington, perhaps, but, you know, I, I think there's something in the air. I live there, and, you know, I get out here, and all of a sudden I get clarity. But um, uh, the, 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 the reality was that they overreached. And then they were able to pick up the phone and call up government agencies that don't regulate them and say, bail us out. Now that's power. Stay out of our hair until we have a problem and then come and bail us out. And the argument was that this is a systemic risk and therefore you got to help us even though it's the same system as the people who were defaulting on their mortgages, right? I mean, that's the same continuum of, 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 of system. And so we have the bizarre phenomenon of the United States government bailing out investment banks but not homeowners. Well, nobody in this room looks terribly shocked. But, you know, because why would you be shocked? One group has power, the other group doesn't have power. You know, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but there are patterns that are worthy of note. One is that people in high-level government positions and high-level business positions rotate in and out. The current Secretary of the Treasury, a very smart guy, you know, good guy in many respects, although he's completely blown it on this crisis, um, Hank Paulson, was the CEO of Goldman Sachs. The preceding CEO of Goldman Sachs, Steve Friedman, was the senior economic advisor to the president. The previous CEO of Goldman Sachs, Bob Rubin, was the Secretary of Treasury and the Senior Economic Advisor to the President. The previous CEO of Goldman Sachs was the Senator from New Jersey and is now the Governor of New Jersey, clearly the underachiever in the group. <laughs> the, the current President of the World Bank worked at Goldman Sachs. I can go on. I mean, the, the point is there is a very close connection between the super-empowered from finance and the super-empowered from government and all these other places. And that's what sets the rules. And if that's what sets the rules, no wonder there's anger. And some of that anger comes in foreign countries. You have Hugo Chavez or Vladimir Putin or Mahmoud Ahmadinejad and other people saying, this globalization is not for us. You know, we, 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 this, is, this has got to stop, this globalization. And, they, and so now in countries where you used to have communism versus capitalism, you have globalism versus nationalism. Even in this country, even in America, I know it's a shock to you, but there is rampant populist nationalism goofiness going on. Lou Dobbs <laughs> comes to mind, you know. Uh, you know, I know that this is a state with a border on another country, and I, I, I'm going to risk saying this, even though it may alienate somebody. But only in a, you know, in this kind of heightened, you know, atmosphere where emotion counts more than reason, do you get people proposing building a 700-mile wall on a 3,000-mile border? 
Seriously. I hope you guys get the plaque made. You know, the monument to futility. Um, you couldn't conceive of a bigger monument to futility. Um, you know, and I mean, you know, Governor Richardson says, the only thing a 12-foot wall on the border is going to do is increase the sales of 14-foot ladders. <laughs> um, but, 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 you know, the, the, the problem is that the, the, the intent of that wall is to not to keep out people. It's to keep out the future. And it's even less good at keeping out the future than it is at keeping out people. The future is globalization. We don't get to choose whether we want globalization to happen. Globalization is a historical trend. It would be like saying in 1820, well, let's have a referendum on whether or not we want this dang industrial revolution thing to go forward. Okay? It's happening. The question is, how do you deal with it? And if it's happening, do you want to leave the decisions regarding the great transnational issues of the time to a super-empowered small group of globally motivated people who don't have ties to countries at a time when countries are growing weaker, and by the way, I'm not indicting CEOs of corporate companies. They could all be angels as far as this thesis works. They are legally obligated to advance the interests of their shareholders. That's what you want them to do if you're a shareholder. They are not going to act in the public interest because that's not their job. You need to have some force out there acting in the public interest. You need to have somebody balancing this out. Or, inevitably, the story of this generation is going to be the story of every other generation. Elites rise up, they overreach, and somebody pushes back. Is it Hugo Chavez, or is it Vladimir Putin? Is it somebody saying this American form of inequality that's spreading the world should cause us to launch a jihad? <clears throat> Probably it's all those things. That's the pushback right now against this system now. The challenge is, how do you create institutions that represent the people at these tables? You're not going to have a global government. We're not going to have you know, the capital of the world in Abuja, Nigeria, or an intercontinental congress of 1776. You know? That's not going to happen. But you are going to need some kind of global governance. And that's really the challenge of our time. How do you come up with that? How do you come up with that? And the, the, you know, I think from the point of view of people who are educators or people who are students, you run a business school, you say to, you know, that business is about innovation. And if you're running a business, you should be able to solve a problem. You should be creative. But typically, when we talk about government, we say government doesn't work. It's a bureaucracy. It's a mess. Well, unless we come up with mechanisms of global governance that are as innovative and fresh and new and able to represent the views of the many at the tables of the few, we are going to have a period of real enormous unrest. And that's, that's the challenge embedded in this book. Now, one last point, then we open it up to a question or two. But one last point is I know a bunch of you have you know, uh, 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 institutional ties to China. And one thing I should say is that the biggest change in this group is that it's a two-thirds transatlantic group right now, and the fastest number of people being created in this group are being created in Asia. The three countries that created the most billionaires last year were Russia, China, and India. Um, the, the, the part of the world that's creating the most billion-dollar-plus companies right now is Asia. And if this group sets the agenda 
and they become more Asian and less European in their attitude. Those of you who are dealing with China on a regular basis know that what that may mean is, well, we're happy to deal with other countries, we're not gonna meddle with their affairs. It could mean a different view between the role of the individual and society as a whole. And that's something everybody needs to think about. It's better in the sense that it's more representative of the reality of the planet. But it may represent a major sea change for all of us in terms of how the views we are comfortable with get advanced, accepted, or not accepted on the planet. And so that's yet another, another important thing. At the end of the day, you gotta ask yourself, when you read about these people and you read about their lives and their billion dollar homes and, or the, the, the great power that they have, does this system reflect the world I wanna live in? Because all of you are empowered enough to make a difference, to stand up, to produce kinds of change. Today, the 1,100 billionaires on the planet have a net worth that is roughly twice that of the 2.5 billion poorest people on the planet. 1,100 people, 2.5 billion people. It is a stunning reality. I think it's an indictment of my, our time. I mean, I believe people should have incentives. You know, but the guy who ran the biggest hedge fund in the world last year made $3 billion. I think he would have been perfectly happy if he had made a billion dollars. <laughs> I mean, he may not have been happy, but the shareholders would have been happy who got $2 billion more back. Um, so there are lots of kinds of interests that suggest the rebalancing is in order. The question is, who's going to do the rebalancing? You know, and and that's the, that's the big question associated with the book. And, that's why I think it's an interesting story. It's the story of our future, not just the story of our past. Anyway, I know it's late. You guys, you know, you've got things to do and places to go and, and, and super class members to meet with. Um, <laughs> but do you have, do you have a, a question or two? Austin from LD Bell High School is wondering if there's anyone here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area that's a part of the super class. Well, I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are. There, I mean, I, I, as I understand it, the Dallas-Fort Worth area is now home to more Fortune 500 companies than, uh, than New York City. And if that's the case, uh, CEOs and other senior people in those organizations are part of it. Certainly, there are people in this area who have the wealth criteria uh, and the influence. There are even people in Fort Worth. And I'm not going to name names, but you know who they are, because their names tend to be on buildings and things. Um, uh, uh, and and you know, so yeah, that's that, that. You know, there there are certainly people in this area, and they, you know, look, the United States is still the richest, most powerful country in the world. The president of the United States, who I believe, is from Texas. Um, uh, is all you know the richest is the most powerful person on the planet. Um, so, you know, you've got another couple of months <clears throat> as a Texan, as the most powerful person on the planet. It's going to change. Could be Arizona, could be Illinois. Um, uh, but, but it won't be New York. In, 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 in any event, um, uh, therefore, if you're the fourth largest metro area in the United States, there, there's a big concentration there. And there are many, in fact, I would say there are probably more members of the superclass from the Dallas Fort Worth area than there are from 80% of the countries on, on, the, on the planet.
I went. I talked to a lot of women who were CEOs or were heads of big uh, financial institutions, and I said, "What do you feel about this?" And you know, where's your outrage? And they weren't outraged. They well, women have babies, and I was like, "What?" You know, I mean, I you know, I went to college back when dinosaurs roamed the earth. You know, the so late 1970s, and I, I thought there was a revolution going on. You know, there was, you know, something was happening, and the role of women in society was going to change in a fairly substantial way. But in legislatures around the earth, the average representation of women is 17%. In the Fortune 500, there are 13 women out of out of 500 CEOs. Um, so it's it's stuck. Now the good news is that the majority of the students at the Harvard Business School are women. And the good news is that the majority of students at almost every college in America are women. And uh, in fact, there are a couple colleges back in Maryland where I come from that have started programs, remedial programs, so that they could actually get men into the colleges. <laughs> because clearly we're working at a disadvantage. I've always believed that testosterone was a brain solvent. Um, um, and there seems to there seems to be some empirical evidence of it. Um, uh, but the, the you know the answer is education. The answer is women championing other women, and the answer is cultural change. Uh, and we live in a fairly enlightened society on this, and there are many places in the world. I mean, in, you know, in Pakistan, the ratio of men to women is different. Everywhere in the world, it's 51, 49 women. There, it's 51, 49 men. Because babies that are female don't get the same medical care. Because it's considered bad economically to invest in taking care of a female baby versus taking care of a male baby. So, you know, on the one hand, we got to worry about getting women up into the top tiers of power. On the other hand, it's very clear that the single most beneficial development investment that can be made in the world is the education of women, uh, because they're responsible for a whole host of other things that make societies function. And you know, sort of the movement towards corporate social responsibility drives it. The movement towards philanthropy drives it. Uh, what you know, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett are doing helps to drive it, you know, these guys giving almost all their wealth into uh, philanthropy. Um, having said that, the average person in this group gives one, per, in the superclass, gives one percent of their income to philanthropy. And so they're the, you know, the Gateses and the Buffets are the exception. And the other thing is that the Gates Foundation, perfect example of concentration of power, gives out 1.5 billion dollars a year to global public health. More money actually reaches the field from the Gates Foundation than from the World Health Organization. So they're an agenda setter, and, and that's a wonderful thing. And you know, we, keep, we would be terrible to, to criticize that or to look askance at it. But it's not accountable to anybody. It's, it's, it, it follows the directions of, of Bill Gates and Melinda Gates and Warren Buffett, Bill Gates Sr., and a couple of people. So it does a lot of good stuff. And we need things like that. We need the contribution. Uh, we need the benefits of corporate social responsibility. We need the Chinese doing what they're doing in order to get investment. Um, 
But having said that, it's not enough. And you do need people advancing public interests you know, on a whole host of other issues. Um, I'm, the perfect example is climate change, where if you leave it to the market, we've seen what happens. Little bits of progress, not enough, and it may be that the consequences are accelerating so rapidly that if we leave it to that process, we're, we're not going to solve the problem. And you know, coalitions of the willing don't work in climate change. Everybody has got to be involved. And, you, and, and the, you know, we have two kinds of international institutions in the world, weak and dysfunctional. Some are weak and dysfunctional, but, but that's by design. We don't want powerful international institutions. We, we, we want our nation states to be powerful. But there are a whole host of issues, starting with climate change, where you need something else. And we're going to have to figure out what that is because the market won't solve that problem. You know, it's, it's just like the market won't solve the green energy problem. You know, the, it, there is literally not a form of green energy on the planet, which we know we need, that has been cultivated to the point that it can actually survive without government incentives and tax incentives and regulatory breaks and all of that. And that's why Europe is leading in those, because they believe more in that kind of process than we do. So. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, you, you're right to bring up the point because it's, it's wrong to say this, there's only one path. But people say that about both sides, and we need both sides. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.